Hello out there, you marvelous minnows. Thanks for joining us for another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I am joined by the also marvelous Casey. Casey, it's, I guess, good to see you virtually today. This is like a letdown because we literally saw each other less than 48 hours ago. I was in Florida, and it was so good to see your face. It was wonderful. We had a delightful time. Yes. We did not do any podcasting. We did not. But no. it was well, it was glorious to be in the same space for a little bit. Yes, we'll post a picture. It was nice and warm and relaxing and wonderful. And yay. yay. So now I'm back in PA. And of course, today was like a 40 degree raining kind of day. <laughs> but it's supposed to be nicer again tomorrow and the sun will go out. So maybe I'll be a little less sad about it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> How was your week? Any updates? No update. Oh, wait. yes, I do. I have an update that I'm excited about. If you remember, if you've listened to our sort of New Year episode from earlier this year, mm-hmm. where we talked about our goals, resolutions, whatever, for ourselves and for the podcast, one of the things that I talked about was just wanting to learn more, kind mm-hmm. of a general thing. And I'm going to be not quite taking a class because that costs money, but I have joined a webinar series that a university is is putting on. So it's part of a class that you can take and pay for, but I'm just doing the free uh, webinar portion. And it's called, I think it's called God, Country, and Climate Change. Uh, but it's, so it's from a Christian university, but it's talking about sort of it's so it's going to have both like the biblical basis for creation care and also a look at the the science behind anthropogenic climate change and how to have those conversations and putting all of that stuff together I'm super excited about it and that starts next week so I feel like I'm I've I've taken a step towards my eco goals for the yeah, year. Yeah, check that little box off. That's awesome. That is such a great, like, tailored to you. Sort yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's okay. a really nice combo of, I mean, not only that goal, but, you know, my basis for why I care about the environment, you know, com- comes a lot from that. So I'm excited to have that basis, but also be learning more about the science and all of that. Yeah, keep us updated on that. That's going to yeah. be super cool. I got to see your um, sunflower at mm-hmm. your house. Yep. I think this week I'll start my vegetable planting. Yay! Which is a little early, but it, it the yeah. weather is letting us, so yeah. we're going to give it a shot. So if any of you out there are interested in talking more about that, we can always do more about that they too. are i know they are <laughs> so <laughs> some um, of them i know yeah with food prices especially being so crazy recently it's kind of exciting to like take a little control out of uh, you know that mm-hmm. i i have said it many times um at least in real life that my goal is to never pay for lettuce ever again because <laughs> we have tortoises and they're always eating leafy greens and it's like one of the easiest things to grow for a long point of the year and I just, I, I want to give them nice stuff, but I don't want to pay for it anymore. Right. <laughs> so, so that's the goal. I would like a step-by-step tutorial because <laughs> I want to grow things too and I don't know what I'm doing. Okay. Well, maybe we'll have to do that. Maybe we'll have to do a, like a food gardening episode because that can definitely impact your uh, carbon footprint and yeah. it can be done eco-friendly wise and hey, nothing's more local than your backyard. So Sarah, this week... I, I kind of teased it before. We're going to be talking about the Ohio train derailment that happened about a month ago 
from when this pod is coming out at this point. Yes. Yeah. So we kind of put off doing it right away because there's been new information. Like we we were just saying there was a live press conference maybe an hour ago. (laughs) Um, So this episode's information is the best I could put together from current data. But there is a good chance that soon after it will be it there might be, be more or some things might have yes. adjusted a little bit, but I think the things that we're going to talk about, I think, are pretty well established. A- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So there'll be lots and lots of references in the notes. A lot of it is crowdsourced from uh, the New York Times and NPR and CNN and then also some government press conferences from mm-hmm. the Associated Press, um, the EPA, all sorts of different places are now talking about it and doing a better job. So there should be lots of opportunity to learn more. All right, Sarah, my question for you today is trains. You've been on one? You interact with them at all? I love trains. We were we were laughing about this, but I actually think it's a great question. Partially because I feel like I need to set the record straight because I feel like I may have said before that I've never been on a train. I've never taken a train trip. Like I would love to do a like travel across the country in a train and get to see things. I have, however, been on a train. I always forget about it. But when I was living in Fort Worth, there was just a little commuter train to go from Fort Worth to Dallas. And so I did that a couple of times for events like a a hockey game and a a concert that I went to in Dallas. And I loved it. I thought that was fantastic. I feel like trains are the public transportation that I could really get behind if we had a decent system here. We, we don't. Um, but, um, Bad. <laughs> but, but that train, that commuter train was fantastic because driving in Dallas, I only did it once when I moved down there. I drove through Dallas and it was the worst. I hated it. Uh, that kind of thing gives me anxiety driving in big cities and having not knowing where you're going and finding a place to park and all of that craziness so the train was so easy it was so convenient I loved it so my limited train experience has been positive yeah I would say when trains work well they're awesome like I I'm on the east coast so there's a lot more trains going on so I've taken them to New York I took them from college back home um, I also lived in Europe for a short period of time where trains are much more the norm versus mm-hmm. driving places. And so I would take the train all the time around Northern Ireland. And it was a really efficient, easy way to get around. And obviously, there's some really great things about not having a personal vehicle, having carbon dioxide out there. So yeah. um, trains definitely are a opportunity the U.S. has to expand upon. But then you have stories like this week and you might think, oh, there's some issues that we need to uh, sort through um, because we use trains not just for transportation of humans, but of lots of other goods too. So this week we're going to talk about what happened in Ohio in the beginning of February and what's still happening in Ohio after this uh, derailment. I might accidentally refer to it as an accident, but some of the National Transportation Board has basically said we don't want to really call it an accident because there's lots of things that could have been prevented to this to make it not as much of an accident. So I'm going to try and refer to it as a derailment, but we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment.
are back to talk about the East Palestine train derailment. Sarah, do you remember when we did our episode about air pollution, when we talked about Denora, um, which mm-hmm. was a small town in Pennsylvania? Yes. Yes. This intro reminds me a little bit of that. So I'm going to try and paint a picture of what exactly happened in this incident. And then we'll sort of step back to what those broad impacts are. Um, if you want to learn more about how like kind of an acute disaster turns into a long-term problem that air pollution episode sort of goes through that so maybe that's a model of how we're going to find out more about what happens in this incident as well but basically on february 3rd 2023 a train owned by norfolk southern railroad company was traveling from madison illinois to conway pennsylvania the train was about 150 cars long and was carrying a variety of goods including cement frozen vegetables plastic pellets, with 20 of those cars carrying hazardous materials. So first pause. (laughs) I don't know that it's ever really occurred to me that all of those things would be on one train. No, I know. I I understand very little about how freight trains work, I guess. You see them all the time, and I've lived not too far from train yards at certain points in life and things like that and so you just see all those giant cars I don't ever think too much about what all gets transported that way and how how that works yeah one's got frozen vegetables and one's got cement on it like it just seems very random Mm -hmm. obviously but I guess it's just getting things where they need to go they gotta get somewhere it's more about where they're going than what it is yeah and I'm sure there's different types of train cars involved As it was traveling, one of the wheel ball bearings started to get overheated and it was getting hotter and hotter as the train went on. Along those railroads, there are wayside defect detectors, which are basically built in to detect if there's something weird going on with the train that would make it need to stop to be inspected. Um, And it passed at least two of those, but the temperature of the bearing did not quite hit the threshold for triggering an audible alarm for the crew to slow the train. By the time it passed a third detector... The heat, which was clocking in about 250 degrees above ambient temperature, triggered an audible alarm. But at that point, it was too late. As the crew immediately reacted to that alarm, they started slowing the train. The faulty wheel bearing broke. And at about 9 p.m., 38 of those cars derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, which is a town of approximately 4,800 people just on the border between Ohio and Pennsylvania. So if you go to like Google Maps and you look, I wanted to see how far it was. It's just literally right on the border Mm. between those two states. So both Pennsylvania and Ohio have been involved in the reaction to this. Both residents from both states are involved in what happened here. Now, according to the Federal Railroad Administration, there are approximately a thousand train derailments a year. This was stunning to me, actually. This is one of the things that I looked up after this happened because it was just one of the things that you you start hearing about and how rare is this and all of that. That was a really surprising number to me because I don't like, you don't hear about them that often. But I, I read yeah. that already this year, two months into the year, there have been like a dozen incidences. Right, which would put it on the low end because mm-hmm. at this point, it's like two to three yeah. a day. It was one of those sort of fact check type of things because Mm -hmm. I guess there were rumblings out there that oh this is weird like this is unusual and they were like actually it's not (laughs) for the to have that number 
Right. Yeah. Then it's not. Um, and it, it averages about four deaths a year that can be attributed to train derailments. No one was hurt in the initial derailment. However, this derailment was different and caught the news, unlike lots of other ones, because 20 of those cars were carrying hazardous materials, including 11 of them that came off the track and subsequently caught fire. Um while the cars had plastic labels to identify the contents on each of the cars, those plastic labels melted. Oh, yeah. Didn't <laughs> so think about that. That's one of the things that came out pretty recently. And so that made it difficult for first responders and firefighters to understand what exactly they were dealing with when they first got to the blaze um, because they didn't know what was in the cars. That seems like a preventable thing. Yes, too. that has since been identified as a thing that we could very easily yeah. fix <laughs> to not have happen again. Um, what we do know is five of the train cars were carrying more than 115,000 gallons of vinyl chloride, which is an ingredient in PVC. I feel like a lot of people, when they know about plastics, know like a PVC pipe, mm -hmm. um, but it's used in lots of different things from construction to medical equipment. And at ambient temperature, it exists as a colorless gas that smells sweet but it's normally transported as a compressed liquid so it's then mixed in for to make pvc health impacts of this gas include shortness of breath headaches and dizziness with chronic exposure linked to liver damage and rare types of cancer other hazardous materials on the train included ethylene glycol monobutyl ether and ethyl hexyl acrylate which is used in paints caulks and adhesives and isobutylene at least one of the cars lost all of its butyl acrylate and the contents of these cars were catching on fire the initial fire was contained within about two hours but one rail car with that vinyl chloride was still recorded as having rising temperatures internally due to chemical reactions that were happening with the vinyl chloride. So at that point, it had been heated to a point where that chemical was changing and they were concerned that it was going to explode and that would have shot shrapnel up to mm -hmm. a mile away. So they decided to do a, quote, controlled release of the vinyl chloride and ask for an evacuation of a one by two mile area on both sides of the state line around East Palestine. When burned, vinyl chloride degrades into hydrogen chloride and phosgene. Apparently, phosgene smells like hay, which I think is interesting because most of the time I don't think of that as like a chemical smell. They released the vinyl chloride on February 6th. It lit on fire. There was a huge plume of black smoke, and they were able to finally extinguish all of the fire on February 8th. They tested the air in the area, and the evacuation order was then lifted. The air quality has been tested and deemed safe before the residents were allowed home. I just, in terms of painting a picture, can you imagine being, you know, be, if you're close enough, I don't know what in within that radius, what folks could see or if they knew about yeah. it before, but then just sort of getting this evacuation order. Hey, we're going to be releasing this chemical and burning it off. So we need you to get all your stuff and get at like that's just not on my bingo card like I'm not prepared for that scenario you know what a just what a crazy thing to have to do gather up your stuff and go find somewhere to stay yeah get out and they were very very serious about it the Ohio governor was like you're gonna be considered basically like a I forget like a 
obstruction to mm-hmm. <laughs> to uh, this process if you don't get out. And I know, like living in Florida, people evacuate a lot for hurricanes right. and things like that. But there's some warning that that's coming. You know, this is just such a freak thing that you you just you can't see coming. The closest thing I could think of during this whole thing is last May, a block away from my mom's house, there was a house explosion. And the house basically exploded to the point of disintegration. I think there were seven people killed. And it was it was an awful thing to happen that still has no explanation. They still haven't figured out what caused it. But I think for the residents in that area, like they probably had a very similar thought, which mm-hmm. is like this happened. It was already initially terrifying, like having <laughs> oh, well, there was a derailment of hazardous materials in my neighborhood. That's what this train is. There's an explosion of a house that we don't really understand. But also the I don't know what's next. I don't know what the right. long term implications are. And there's some other similarities that I'll talk about as we get a little bit further into this. But that's the closest I could think of. And I know how scary it was for everybody in that neighborhood. And some of those people couldn't ever return home because their houses were condemned. But for this, luckily, they because they didn't have the explosion, basically the Ohio governor was saying that neither options of like burning it or the car exploding were great options. We didn't like either of those options, but this seemed to be the lesser of the evils, like having an explosion just didn't seem to be a good option for there. So residents returned, and this is a very small town, like 4,800 people, very close-knit community. Residents returned, and the the air quality and the water quality was deemed as safe. Um, they reported an odor like nail polish remover with eye irritation, trouble breathing, and mysterious rashes popping up in the days following. Initially, it was reported that 3,500 fish had died in the days after the derailment. That number was recently updated to over 38,000 fish and 5,000 other aquatic animals. So that that's pretty crazy, too. They were able to, like, I guess, go in and identify over 2,000 fish that had died shortly thereafter. And based on the area that the chemicals leaked into, were able to extrapolate that that's approximately how many animals they were. Okay. They have not, like, body counted, counted. all of these. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I did see videos of residents, like, going to their local streams and taking video and, like, throwing rocks and showing that there were things you know, still chemicals within that water system. Um, So that, I think, started the general vibe coming out of this, which is that, okay, this happened, the initial event, and now authorities are saying it's okay to go back home, but residents did not feel safe. Like, they, they were still reporting symptoms, it, it again reminds me of of that house explosion because basically our power company was like, wasn't us. And the residents in the area were like, we've actually reported the smell of gas in this area for months. Mm-hmm. So it feels a little bit like you're not really telling the full story here. You're just trying to save face. And that's, I think, what these residents are sort of feeling, too, is you can say that the readings are OK, but that doesn't neg- like negate my rash or in this case people's coming home to pets and livestock that had also died or become ill in that time period. Right. It's hard. And I think this is one of the things that I struggle with most in this story. Because I don't know about you, Casey. I heard I learned of this first from a social media post. Yeah. I saw this on social media before 
but I actually saw it on it like an eco Instagram account that I follow but it was all just residents you know sharing their stories and I was like huh so I googled it and there were major news outlets reporting on it I just they just hadn't popped up I hadn't seen or, or, or heard about it but I found out about it on social media so that's I think been an interesting dynamic to come out of this is I think all of the the social media posting and the reports from the people that are living there are super important and helping to generate interest in the story but it's also a challenge I mean the EPA is there FEMA's there so I, I feel like there's a lot of nuance in the conversation where we have it's because I want to believe that these people are telling us the truth right? right I want you know they're saying the levels are safe but I feel like there has to be more clarity on what that actually means because we're talking about not only dosage but also length of time right of exposure and so I feel like that needs to be more be made more clear and I think you know the concerns of the people if I lived in that town man I'd be freaking out for sure so it's easy for me to sit over here and say but but they're saying it's okay you know I think it's it's a very legitimate concern for the folks that live there to want to make sure that everything really is being done and that they're getting all the information that they need but I just I feel like it's an interesting an interesting dynamic that we're seeing come out of this I agree I think I first saw that the train derailed from like some sort of news alert on my phone but the, the social media is where I started to get the hey we're not covering this enough mm-hmm. hey this is actually could end up being a really big ecological disaster yeah. that we're just sort of brushing under the rug and it is that tension between yes what are the authorities saying what are the residents experiencing? And, you know, residents, again, they they could totally be also telling the truth, but also have some confirmation bias, you know, like when right. something bad happens and then you're like, well, my cat died too. So like that yeah. and you is can, connected. And you can get rashes from stress and I right. would be dang stressed out. Shingles. So like it's, it's, you can't say that what they're, you know, reporting is, explicitly for sure coming from this but that doesn't mean you can dismiss it either right and there's a little bit more context to a little bit later on as well so people were evacuated but many residents who returned home reported that their pets or livestock animals have had health issues including sudden death and seizures i've seen reports saying like somebody's cat um, someone's chickens uh, a very young cow I haven't seen some sort of aggregated like this many pets, this many of this. This is what we're we're experiencing. So it feels more anecdotal because right. that's all we have. And I haven't seen any of that confirmed to be As, definitely connected yes. yet. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just important to keep in mind that doesn't mean it isn't. It hasn't been reported yet. Right. And so I, my guess is that some of these news outlets, at least, are erring on the side of caution mm-hmm. to not report it that way. Um, That being said, there is a class action lawsuit filed by the Sandusky-based Murray Murray Law Firm on behalf of residents within two miles of the derailment for these incidences, saying that, like, we're we're asking that Norfolk take responsibility for the Mm -hmm. deaths of these animals. And so my guess is over the next several years, there will be discovery phases. I know when they were talking about that cow, that they're sending out tissue samples to Mm -hmm. see if some of those chemicals are detected within the tissue that you can make that definitive link. That's also an issue. It's like, right. 
they would really do need a sample size of a certain amount to be able to say, hey, mortality rates were X amount above normal mortality rates to prove even if there was causation, the proof is the hard part. So the EPA has determined the air quality is more or less the same as it was prior to the derailment at that point, showing no chemical levels at a level of concern. As you pointed out, what a level of concern is, is like, okay, I what is your level of concern? Right. My level of concern. <laughs> exactly. And again, I feel like, you know, you, if you're talking about level of concern for acute, right. you know, like that's different. This is going to be around for right. a little they bit. Right? I mean, there. I don't know. Again, I don't want right. to say because I have not looked up how long these chemicals last, but that's my, you know, if if these things are going to be in the air for a length of time and these people are living there, what does that mean? You know? Right. My understanding is that the initial plume of smoke, all of that has dissipated from the air. The concern at this point is when you burn chemicals, they turn into different chemicals a lot of times. And that's when they're going to be settling in the water, settling in the soil for longer periods of time. And so the thing you were initially testing for isn't necessarily what is there that could still cause issues. One of these is dioxins, um, which I guess are a byproduct of when you burn some of these things. And so that's something that activists and uh, like doctors and scientists are unclear about whether the EPA is testing for those dioxins rather than just the initial like vinyl chloride and the phosgene and things like that. The EPA has also tested the municipal drinking water. They say that is safe, but has recommended people with private wells get their wells tested before drinking it. Um, So I know on both sides of the state line, they have been, they think they've tested initially like 25 wells. It's hard to say exactly where they're at now. And they tested the interior homes air quality of at least 550 local residences. Um, So they have done like a lot of testing, but yeah, that's, that's it. You can say it's fine. But so another example, my sister at her apartment, a local cheesesteaks shop caught fire and she had to be evacuated from her her place and the smoke went up into her apartment and she came in and it smelled like smoke. It smelled like chemicals. It smelled horrible. She had to get paid, like pay for cleaning and things like that, had to prove to the insurance company that it was worth cleaning. And it still didn't smell hundred percent right, even though they say, oh, it's safe to inhabit. And that's something these residents are also experiencing. It's like, that's cool that you say it's fine, but like my house still smells or the walls need scrubbing and there needs to be additional cleanup than maybe just what the ambient like air quality is at the time. At this point, 1.1 million gallons of water and 4,600 yards of contaminated soil have been removed from the site. I think that the water is going to Texas. Yeah. And I've read that there were some concerns around too, how that happened, but Yes, same thing. That's the soil's going to Michigan, and Michigan, the Michigan representative was like, nobody told me about this. Mm-hmm. So so that's another actual point we can talk about as well. So the EPA, the Transportation Department, says that this disaster was completely preventable. So why did it happen then if it was preventable? Sarah, have you heard any of the arguments from the different stakeholders about who's to blame and all of that? I've heard a little and I hate it. So I, I was a little, when you talked at the beginning about not calling it an accident, like I understand why folks are saying that, but I I also feel like it's how you want to look at the word accident. Like my, my feeling is nobody wants this to happen. True. This is a bad thing. Norfolk Southern is not happy (laughs) that this 
happened, yeah. you know, and, and at least what they're saying so far is it does not look like there was any error on the part of any of the crew. Is that what you call it? The people yes, on the train? Yeah. I don't know. Um, so that's why in my mind, I still, I call it an accident, even though I understand the reason behind, behind that feeling, because if yeah. we can do better, we should be doing better. So I, the biggest thing I've heard, and I, I always hate when we start bringing politics into these tough situations, but the one that I at least first heard about was about the rollbacks of regulations regarding train breaking systems that happened under the Trump administration. That was not the cause of this particular incident, which I get in my mind, again, if this is this makes me think of when my car was totaled, when somebody hit my car and I had to get a new car and I was told my car had a specific safety feature that didn't end up ha- having and I'm real mad about it because I just wanted, even though this safety feature that I thought I was getting would not have prevented the accident that I was in, yes, yeah. I was just very concerned about safety at that point. I It was such a freak accident. I was really hesitant. Driving made me uncomfortable. I just wanted my car to be as safe as possible. That's what I feel about this regulation. I understand that it didn't cause this accident, but if it can prevent more things like this from happening in the future, in my mind, we should be doing it. But so anyway, that's the, uh, that's probably the biggest one that I've heard of. And then there was a little bit, you talked about those those like wayside detection mm-hmm. system things, not detecting the heat early enough. I was just reading about that one today, how those are like, there's not a set level basically, right? For what those need to be at. And those are kind of de- determined independently. So those can differ from company to company. Yes. Yeah. So what you said about the rollback of regulations is correct. So in 2015, the Obama administration, responding to a train derailment outside (laughs) Philadelphia, put into place a regulation which was addressing trains carrying hazardous materials, which help regulate speeds and braking systems. One of the reports that I heard about the braking systems is basically trains right now have the system that they've had for a really long time, which is that you throw on the brakes and then the first car stops and then the second car stops and then the third car stops. And there's updated technology where basically you throw on the brake and each individual car simultaneously would all stop. That seems (laughs) incredibly logical to me. And I never, I guess I didn't realize that that wasn't sort of how it worked. Standardized, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, I can't say that like it's, I don't know how how much time is in between, but basically it's a more centralized communication that seems to make sense. And especially in this particular scenario where there's not a lot of time between when you're figuring out something's wrong and when you have to stop it from going wrong, mm-hmm. like every little bit counts. Um, so that was implemented in 2015. The Trump administration rolled back this regulation in 2018. The New York Times and the Washington Post both said that this rule would not have impacted this train since it wasn't deemed hazardous. And also speed was not the issue in this particular case. Um, it seems to be that faulty bearing. If it had been declared hazardous, Ohio state officials would have been notified that it was traveling through the state. 
I don't know how much of a difference that would have made. Like, that's something that the governor of Ohio was like, well, gee, I really wish we would have known this was happening. And maybe if it had, they would have had like the list, the, the manifesto list of, yeah. was on it, um, which is important. But I, I mean, it's sort of like some of the arguments I've also been seeing of like, well, the residents should be notified that there's hazardous materials traveling through their neighborhood. Well, I mean, how many of those people have the financial resources to decide that they're not going to live near the train that occasionally has hazardous material coming down the line? Right. I Yeah, I don't know what good that would do for people. Right. So I agree on this one. It's this rule in particular is not the reason that this happened. I think it comes into more play when you have what I think is a completely aside argument about who's showing up at this, at East Palestine, basically. There's some arguments about like what politicians should be there, who shouldn't be there, what that means. I'm going to leave that up to the residents about what that makes them feel. But from a regulatory perspective, to throw around that when we have other things that can help with the safety, I think that that's probably what we need to be focused on. But that rule, not one of them. Congress is another person that I've actually seen blamed person, entity, um, that I've seen blamed. So last year, do you remember the railroad strikes, Sarah? Not really, if I'm being honest. I'm sure I was aware of them at the time, but you know I think how it I was. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was in the fall. So railroad workers were going on strike. The main point that was in the news at the time was over sick days, basically, um, that the railroad workers did not have sick days and basically were operating under a lot of labor standards that they did not feel were fair. So they were under negotiations with the railroad companies. Um, one of the points of contention, I guess, was had to do with safety inspections and the amount of time that they ha- were allotted to actually inspect the cars. And so The union leaders have claimed that the railroads have been cutting costs, including these safety inspections, the amount of time that are allotted for them, which could have been addressed during negotiations. Congress interceded in those negotiations because if we had had a national railroads shutdown, the supply chain, which we already know we're all dealing with inflation, would have been just like completely (laughs) just next level screwed up. And so they decided to intercede and end the strike, but that basically ends the leverage that Mm -hmm. those workers would have had to create safer conditions for themselves, but also for the community. And that just goes to show you like the level of nuance that Mm -hmm. needs to, that we don't get in so many conversations. And really, I I think we need to remember sometimes when things seem, or we feel like things are really simple or straightforward in our minds like this is definitely the way things should be that sometimes there's just so much more that's interconnected within how decisions are made right and like and that it's almost impossible to know exactly what the consequence Mm -hmm. of each thing is and this is where it starts to become more of a where where they're saying it's not an accident because there's a lot of decisions being put into it that lead up to something that over time can just become an inevitability. When you put build in a certain amount of risk into how you operate your company, something is eventually going to happen. And so you might not be able to say this particular thing, but something's going to happen statistically eventually. And that's where the biggest person that or entity that has been blamed, who I think rightfully deserves 
a decent amount of this blame here is Norfolk Southern, the company that owns this train. So as you pointed out, Sarah, individual railroads set the heat standards for those alarms around along the track. So they get to set their own heat standard. I don't know if this has caused other derailments for Norfolk, Norfolk Southern. That particular issue may just be like, this is something Norfolk Southern has said. We are, are now reevaluating whether or not that's going to be changed. And I'm sure other railroad companies are also just like, thanking that god that it wasn't them that this happened to Mm -hmm. and are also changing those um governor josh shapiro of pennsylvania however has accused the company of not participating in a lot of the initial incident command processes providing inaccurate data and conflicting modeling so i know this is something that that people were concerned about when we were talking about like the epa saying things are fine it's one thing when the epa is saying something's fine if the data that they are using, which I'm not, that's not what I'm saying exactly is happening, but, you know, they are also, Norfolk Southern is also providing a lot of this data in the process. And Norfolk Southern has a stake in saying that everything's fine. Right. It is in their best interest to have this not be a big deal. So if you have this company providing data that's inaccurate or modeling that's saying like, no, 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 everything's fine. That should be something that's concerning to residents over there and a reason that they would be a little more mistrustful of the data. And so uh, Governor Shapiro's administration has filed a criminal complaint or or recommended a criminal complaint against the company in Pennsylvania. And Ohio is doing an investigation to see if it warrants the same in their state as well. I don't know specifically if it's like an obstruction sort of deal or what they're if they're accusing them of hiding. They haven't said specifically what those recommended charges would be but it is something that if so far at least pennsylvania is saying that norfolk southern hasn't been a hundred percent forthright and the best actor in the aftermath of this disaster not just the leading up to it part um because i feel like negligence is sometimes harder to prove like we're talking about if each individual railroads has different standards, Norfolk Southern can point to another railroad and say, like, hey, they have There's, even lower standards. Yeah. Yeah, this just happened to happen to us. Didn't have to do with that. So um Transportation Secretary uh Buttigieg has pointed out that the railroad companies in general, not just Norfolk Southern, but including Norfolk Southern, have resisted many attempts by Congress and regulatory agencies to impose safety regulations in general. So some of those things are more secure cars, like stronger cars, slower speeds, different braking. Is this just largely due to cost to the company? Do we know? I'm I'm sure that's what it boils down to. That is basically they they are lobbying lobbying these different agencies saying, no, this is too onerous on our company to have to pay to change these regulations over. So either they have asked that these things not happen or try to delay the implementation of them. So their company, I mean, like that's what companies do is they're just, they're trying to make money. That is their goal is to return money to their stakeholders typically. So the idea I think that they're trying to push forward is basically that again, it's not just Norfolk Southern was just operating. This is the best way that everyone has agreed. And it just happened to happen to us. It's that they're a part of a larger conglomeration that has been resisting changes that may have prevented this or may prevent things like this happening in the future. So the EPA under the Superfund law 
is requiring Norfolk Southern to pay for all remediation of this disaster, including all cleanup. Norfolk Southern has already repaired the rail line to resume operations, but they didn't clean up the soil under the track. And so they're going to make them undo the track and replace the soil underneath there (laughs) um, and continue to pay for more air and water quality monitoring. I know they set up a clinic in the area as well to try and like get a better idea of these long-term health impacts. There was one CNN article that I was reading that said that Norfolk Southern is going to be required to provide a descriptive work plan on how they intend to clean up the water, soil, and debris, reimburse the EPA for providing residents a cleaning service of their homes and businesses, and show up to public meetings and explain their progress. And if they don't follow the order, the EPA will step in and do it uh, while fining Norfolk Southern up to $70,000 a day. Yes. And that came from EPA Administrator Michael Reagan during a CNN town hall. Yeah, they're I mean, they're on the hook there because earlier a town hall was happening. Norfolk Southern said that they basically they pulled out last minute because they said they were having threats to their employees for attending this meeting. Uh, I mean, okay, but also (laughs) uh, a lot of people are pretty upset for a good reason here. So, yeah, I mean, I don't condone threatening anybody's me neither life either but certainly not i think my my bigger thing is like uh, yeah you get to opt out of this right (laughs) for sure yeah they they need to be held accountable yeah so apparently if they if they like drag their feet in a way the epa if they start to do anything norfolk southern has to reimburse them at triple the cost of the epa so they don't have incentive to not help out in this situation it's hitting them monetarily And there is some government backup on this. And that's sort of where we're at right now Mm -hmm. is this is still an ongoing story. And I think that we may find out in the next year, in the next five years, in the next 30 years, if there were long-term effects to exposure to these chemicals due to this train derailment. And I feel really bad for the residents because they should not be part of an experiment to find out if these chemicals, I mean, not that they, it's an, it's an incidental experiment, but it's still their lives that this is happening to. So there, do you have any thoughts about the derailment? I mean, I feel like what you just said, I think is the main takeaway is that I feel for the residents. I do. I have a lot of mixed conflicting thoughts, I guess. And I think a lot of them I tried to to bring up as we went along. But I think ultimately I, I feel for the residents and I just hope that everybody is doing the best they can right now to make sure that these residents are getting taken care of as best as we can. And I think you're right. There are some things that unfortunately we just aren't going to know right away and we'll have to keep learning as we go along and and that's hard and that's frustrating and it just goes back to I mean there's there's environmental risks and consequences to everything we do and this is just a, a really bad one you know again going back to sort of the social media versus the major news outlets I there's no getting around in my mind that this isn't a big deal this is a big deal and that doesn't mean that it's completely disastrous. Like, you know, I think there were completely overblown and inaccurate pieces of information coming out of social media when this first came out. But that doesn't mean, even though not everything that was coming out 
initially was true, it doesn't change the fact that this is a really big deal. And I just hope that, like I said, that the cleanup folks are doing everything that they need to do and that we see some changes to railroad safety in the future. Yeah, I think uh, I'm hoping that this becomes an impetus for more regulations because these companies are are profitable, but they're also doing things that, you know, can have big consequences on on residents. And I think like the feelings of the people involved are just like really important. And I feel like initially in the reporting, that's there felt like a big disconnect between how the residents were responding and how the government was responding. Mm -hmm. Looking at the later articles more recently, it sounds like the EPA and the transportation boards are doing a better job of saying, no, no, like this is serious. You are right. This is, and we're going to make sure that we we're not just like here for the weekend. We're here for the long haul and we're going to make sure we keep doing testing. So I think that's good. And I'm hoping that the residents feel heard and that Mm -hmm. they, whatever their concerns are, are getting addressed. Um, and we didn't cover because I this is too too small an episode for this, but like what materials should be on trains? Right. And what, yeah. Oh, there's you know? so much more to that we could go into this. And that's it's just so hard. I mean, I was thinking about what we've talked about with nuclear power plants when we were talking about this yeah. and sort of the risks that are associated with that. And th- I just feel like there are a lot of different facets and and ways to look at this. And yeah, I do hope that this can be a, a source for people to become more aware and for some changes to get made. Well, thanks for talking to me, Sarah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stick around. We'll give you our challenge for the week in a moment. guys we're back with our challenge of the week this one's pretty straightforward keep looking at the news for updates on this particular uh disaster that happened whether that means that you're following certain social media um or you're looking at different news sites about what the updates are i definitely recommend going straight to the source on some of these Mm -hmm. like the um, epa and the transportation department have both put out initial reports on their findings here but they have not put out their like final investigations or anything so there's still lots of updates that we'll probably get here and i think it is important to get both the vibe check of how the residents are feeling as well as the structural things and i also think you know if you're you're spending any time contemplating this week maybe start thinking about those questions that i hadn't thought about before which is things like what what should be on trains and what like what comfortability do we have <laughs> around risk and and things like that that um that you won't necessarily have answers to but that we can start thinking about as the facets of our lives that are sort of in the background i hear the train occasionally coming by and i don't always think about what's on it and now it's a little bit more forward in my mind and it's it's interesting to know there's so many parts of our world that are happening that we take for granted and maybe there's things that we should just be thinking a little bit more about. Right. And because, I mean, I'm already just thinking about that question. I'm like, okay, but if we don't transport them by train, like what's the safer, you know, trucks crash. Right. I don't think I want my chemicals on planes. (laughs) 
I mean, this this one I don't have a good answer to. I it does pro- prompt something though that I have heard yeah. there's safety issues on trains that are not existent, for example, in pipelines, mm-hmm. which I have not investigated, and that might be a future episode of like you know what what do we need to look at about the pros and cons of these different areas. But that's what I like about the question is the answers not necessarily no we shouldn't carry these things on trains anymore but it just gets you thinking about hey like what are the safest ways that we can do this what are the other options these are just things that i don't think about yeah. very often. what are so, the yeah. responsibilities of these yeah. railroads and the workers and what are the implications of these broader things so so yeah they're they're out there hopefully I learned things during this process. I did not feel like I necessarily, like I I came across a lot of good articles that I have linked um, in the show notes here, but I didn't always feel like all of them had every piece <laughs> I was looking for. And if, I don't think that they will because of just the evolving nature of this timeline. But yeah, take a look. If you want more details, there are more details out there. And I appreciate you guys listening. If you guys have any questions about this or comments or thoughts or personal experiences? Maybe you live in the area. Mm-hmm, yeah. Sarah, where can they reach us? We are on Facebook. You can find us at a Little Greener Podcast. We're on Instagram at a Little Greener Pod. We're on Twitter at a Greener Podcast. And you can email us at a Little Greener Podcast at gmail.com. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with me, Sarah. Yeah, good to see you again. Yeah, we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.